you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 12, that's where we will be today. I was talking with uh, some of the elders, and, and it's been noticed, we've noticed, that while our church is growing, and it is true that God is bringing in some great people, some great people who are gifted in strategic ways and, and who have a deep desire to understand the Scriptures better, we have not been seeing the type of growth that happens when the church is actively engaged in evangelism with co-workers, friends, and neighbors. God converting those people and then us getting the privilege of discipling some babes in the faith, which is fun. And that's not to say that I'm certain that none of you or none of us are evangelizing, and that's why this is happening. I recognize that there are several of you. I've talked to you. have been faithful in proclaiming the gospel. And God in His sovereignty has yet to soften the hearts of those people. I've seen you bring some of them to church. I recognize that there are several of you who have been faithful in that. However, I am pretty confident that most of us are not evangelizing as much as we could and should be. And I put myself in that category. And today I want to think through some reasons why that might be the case. So today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 12. These one-off sermons that I do are, are always kind of difficult because they do require, especially in a book like Isaiah, a good amount of context to really understand what's going on. Fortunately for you, if you have been following along in our Bible reading plan, then you have a little bit of the context for what is going on here in Isaiah chapter 12. On Friday, if you're right up to date, on Friday you would have read about King Ahaz in, in 2 Kings 16. And if you read that, you know that he was a wicked king of Judah who followed three relatively good kings, Amaziah, Azariah, who we typically speak of as Uzziah, and Jotham. He was so wicked, he was such a wicked king, in fact, that as you read in, in 2 Kings 16.3, it says this, He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Not only that, we, we actually find out in 2 Chronicles that it was actually multiple sons that he sacrificed. So he did that, and he also kept offering sacrifices on the high places, refusing to tear them down, refusing to listen to the prophets, refusing to trust in God. And in the passage from 2 Kings 16, we see that when King Ahaz of Judah sees uh, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, come and lay siege against Jerusalem, he goes not to God, but to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, for help. And he paid him using silver and gold from the temple in Jerusalem. And the king of Assyria accepted the payment and he bailed out Ahaz, but even when Ahaz went to meet the king of Assyria, he found there in that meeting place a pagan altar and he ordered Uriah the priest to build him a copy of it so that he could worship there. And what we discover a few chapters earlier in the book of Isaiah in chapter 7 is that before Ahaz went to seek the help of this foreign king, God sent the prophet Isaiah to tell Ahaz to trust in the Lord 
rather than the nation of Assyria. And so it's in this context that we get, actually, in chapter 7 through 11, it's in this context, Isaiah speaking to Ahaz, that we get some of the most incredible prophecies about the coming Messiah. As Judah and its king are told in in chapter 7 through 10 that they are not to put their hope in outside nations, but only in God. We see these prophecies of the coming Messiah. These chapters before chapter 12 make the point over and over again that God is the one who is in control of the nations. He is sovereign. He decides which nations will be conquering nations and which nations will be the conquered nations. He's asking them essentially, why are you putting your hope in Assyria instead of the God who is sovereign over Assyria? And we also find out in chapter 10 that Assyria is a nation that God is going to judge and destroy after he uses it for the purposes that he wants to use it. In fact, there's some great verses in those chapters, in that section that talk about how God just uses the rulers of this earth for his own will, his bidding. But what we see in these chapters is that in spite of all of the trouble that Judah has gotten itself into by putting their trust in in nations instead of in God, by persisting in, in really disgusting, despicable forms of pagan worship and refusing to turn and trust in the Lord, in spite of all of this, we see that God still has a plan of salvation for them. God will save them from this coalition of kings And in the middle of the book of Isaiah, we will see that that God will also miraculously save them from the mess that they get themselves into when that Assyrian nation that they believed would save them later comes to destroy them. That's the context of that prayer of Hezekiah that we already looked at this morning. But also, all of the messianic themes running through chapters 7 through 11 point to an even greater future salvation for God's people. Even though God is under absolutely no obligation to save those who have rebelled against him, he promises he's going to do it anyway. And he will do it in an even greater way than they could have imagined. Chapter 12 is meant to be the future proclamation, the future song of that people, the people who see and experience the salvation of God. Read Isaiah 12 along with me now. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. 
So God, through Isaiah, we see right here, is, is telling this people that though they do not see it now, he promises that the day is coming when these verses will describe the response of a grateful and saved people. And even though many who would have heard these words when Isaiah originally spoke them, they, they would indeed live to shout those same words when God miraculously delivers Judah from Assyria during the reign of Hezekiah, who is the son of Ahaz. While that is true, it is also true that those of us who have come to see and understand the ultimate salvation of God that comes through Jesus Christ should be able to proclaim these words with an even more grateful heart. So what we want to see from this passage today is that the greater your understanding of your salvation, the greater your response to that salvation should be. It's a cause and effect relationship. And that's what you see, you should see, reflected in the two points that you have in your outline in your bulletin. Point number one, the joy of salvation. Point number two, coming out of that, the voice of salvation. So the first point, the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation. And even though this passage is, as we'll see, all about the joy of salvation, that first phrase in verse 1 would have actually kind of had an immediately ominous feel to it for the readers of this. In that day, when he says, you will say, in that day, that phrase, in that day, that Isaiah frequently uses in his book usually refers to a day of judgment. So, for instance, back in chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, we read this. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? We see that. And, and if you would look back in chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, we also get several uses of that phrase in that day to indicate more severe types of judgment. And we see it used like this in other places in the first few chapters of Isaiah. In fact, other than chapter 4, where it is used, where it is used with troubling connotations of judgment, it is all, and it also, but it also gives a hint of a sense of hope. Up until chapter 10, there is no reason for anyone to be looking forward to whatever day is referred to as in that day. But then in 10.20 we see that in that day, a remnant will be saved. And then in 11.10, we really begin to understand the connection of in that day to the Messiah. So we see that even though God has definitely promised serious judgment on those who are His enemies, that is not His only act that's coming in that day. There are also promises of salvation around that judgment. And again, we will see this fulfillment a little bit in God's deliverance of Judah from the nation of Assyria. We do see that in the middle of Isaiah. 
But just a quick read-through of the first nine verses in chapter 11 will demonstrate that there is a salvation coming in the promised Messiah that will go completely beyond merely saving Judah from a powerful invading army. Look at these verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we see in this a prophecy that is much greater than Judah simply being defended by the Assyrian army. We see in this the fulfillment of the promise from Genesis 3. The Messiah, the seed of the woman, the eternal king who will come from the line of David, putting an end to the curse. Not just peace from Assyria, but a peace like the world has never seen or known. So now suddenly, with chapters 10 and 11, we see that in that day becomes a day of joy and celebration. And, and more so for us, who now know the identity of the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. More than that, those who know the extent of the peace which he has won for us. That's us. We know the extent of that peace. Again, a lot of times we read in the Old Testament, and maybe you're doing this in your daily Bible reading. We look at it with kind of a default of, oh, this is good, but it's not as applicable to me as the New Testament stuff. There's a, this is more for Israel. And, and yes, there is some accuracy and there is a sense in which it is for Israel. There is also the truth that we should be able to read and be excited about the Old Testament with an even greater appreciation than the original readers. I'm not saying that they couldn't read it and get the true understanding of what was being said. What I am saying is that we can read it and have a fuller understanding of what was being said because we now see the full image that they could only see the shadow of. I'm saying we should have greater joy when we read Old Testament sections that talk about God's deliverance because we have now seen the unbelievable means in which this has been ultimately accomplished for us. So with that context in mind, I have three sub-points for this first section on the joy of salvation. It's interesting that you, you can't see it as much, 
But, but in the Hebrew here, it is obvious that these first two verses are in the singular. Most of what has been said up to this point in these chapters is in regard to the plural people of God. But right now, for, for these two verses, we're asked to focus on the personal aspect of our salvation. So if you are a Christian, and what we're going to look at here will be, this will be a great time of reflection especially before we take the Lord's table together. If you are not a Christian, though, this will be a good time for you to hear and respond to what God has done for sinners in Christ through His gospel. And even in this discussion, you need to know that we're just going to scratch the surface of some of these amazing truths. So that said, the first sub-point under the joy of salvation, is the joy of propitiation. The joy of propitiation. We see this in verse 1. It says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. What is the reason that one is to give thanks to the Lord? Because though he was angry with me, his anger turned away. We can look at this passage and we certainly understand why the Lord would be angry with the people of Judah. We have no problem getting, getting on that train. Right? They, they had forsaken Him. They put their trust in other nations. They've engaged in idolatry. They failed to worship the Lord in the way that He demands to be worshipped. We don't so much like to think about God being angry today, even though the New Testament frequently refers to the wrath of God. But because God is holy and just, He has a constant disposition of anger and hatred towards sin. And therefore, His wrath remains upon all who remain in their sins. We see in Romans 1.18, where Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness Suppress the truth. That is all of us. We are every bit, every bit as sinful and wicked as these Israelites. Putting our trust in our own gods. Trying to worship God the way we want to worship Him. And when you begin to think that you're not that bad, it's because you have lost the appropriate standard. It can be quite easy for us to look at society in general, look at some of the awful things going on in the world, and begin to think we're doing all right. We are not bad. You look at Hollywood and you're like, is God even paying attention to my sin when you see what's going on there? We tend to think that way. But contrary to what we are constantly told, the default position of every person, every human being, is not good. It's not even neutral. It's wicked. It's that of a sinner who has the just wrath of God hanging over him. God's standard is holiness. It is perfection. Throughout his book, Isaiah uses the term the Holy One of Israel. 26 times. He uses it over and over again. He uses it at the end of verse 12. 
26 of the 29 times that phrase is used in the Bible is in the book of Isaiah. And he uses it over and over again to remind a rebellious people of just how wicked and rebellious they are by comparing them to the true standard, a holy God. Stop comparing yourselves to these other nations. Look to God. We need that reminder also because the standard for entering heaven and being in the presence of God is not merely, not merely agreeing with the Bible's standard of morality and being against all of the ways in which the world is rebelling against God and His standards. Which I think most of us are. But God's standard is perfection. Perfection in action and word and even in thought and being joyfully obedient to Him in every possible way during every single second. That's His standard. And every time we do not do that, we effectively remove God from His throne and put ourselves there instead. Whenever we decide to do what we want, regardless of the will of God, We make ourselves our own Lord. That's idolatry. And that's the reason that God's wrath is justly upon us. If we were to see a police officer and, and break the law in front of him, deciding to ignore the authority that he has and in place of our own authority, which is just some is just a mirage authority based on some sort of selfish belief that no one really gets to tell me what to do. If we did that, we would have to stand before a judge and be sentenced according to justice and true authority. And if we were to ignore the judge and run for our freedom simply based on the belief that I get to make my own decisions with what I do with my body and with my mouth, not this judge, no one has the right to stop me. Again, ignoring true authority for some sham authority that we don't actually possess. Our penalty would be even greater. And if you were to try and usurp the authority of a king and place yourself on the throne, like, like if you're in the readings in Kings, you saw that Adonijah did to Solomon, that's going to cost you your life. What then should the just payment be for the one who attempts to place himself on the throne of the king of the universe? The one who not only sovereignly rules over all, but is creator of all. The one who determines our very existence. Well, the just punishment for one who would commit this type of cosmic treason against an infinite king has to be an infinite punishment. And each of us has committed this type of treason. We do it every time we violate the Word of God in our thinking, in our actions, in our speech. We become so used to not receiving the just punishment of God immediately that we flippantly think those things aren't a big deal anymore. But it's serious. The Holy One of Israel cannot merely overlook the countless offenses of this magnitude of usurping the authority of the king of the universe, he cannot continue, he could not look over those and remain holy. He can't do it. That's the reason why his 
anger. That's the reason why His wrath remains on us. But propitiation does not mean that the wrath of God remains justly upon us, but that that wrath, that just wrath, has been appeased. The just wrath of God has been satisfied. You see that in the next part of the verse when it says, your anger turned away. It turned away. That, that's what we see. This is the reason for the praise. Not that God was angry with me and then he just got over it. It's that the just anger, that just anger, that just wrath from a holy God against a treasonous sinner like myself has been turned away. The penalty for our sin cannot just be dismissed. It can't just be dismissed. They can't simply be forgiven apart from a just penalty being paid. So God's wrath doesn't just disappear. That, that would not be a reason to give thanks and praise Him. That would mean that we were worshiping an unjust God. No, instead of that, His wrath doesn't disappear. It turns. It turns upon another target. The Jews would have understood this. The Jews reading this, they understand that it was blood. Blood that made atonement for sins. The death of something else on their behalf. Upon reading this prophecy, they would have understood that some sort of atoning sacrifice must be made. It must have been made for anyone to ever be able to truly proclaim the words of Isaiah 12. Some sort of atoning sacrifice must have been made. But the sacrifices that they understood were actually always pointing toward the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is what we've seen as we've been reading through these last few chapters of Hebrews. It's what we read in Hebrews chapter 9, where we read that the blood of bulls and goats could never fully take away sin. But Jesus Christ, as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, is able to be offered up as the one and only sacrifice for our sin. So as they read this passage, they would know that an atoning sacrifice had to be made. And as, as the book of Isaiah unfolds, we find out that it is this same coming Messiah that we've just heard about in the first in chapters 7 through 11, this same coming Messiah, the one that's going to bring peace, we see him in chapters 40 through 55, and we discover that he is also the true and perfect sacrifice, the suffering servant that will take upon himself the punishment for our sins. Jesus Christ, being both fully God and fully man, came and lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. And he went to the cross and he took upon himself the full wrath of God that was to be paid on all of us justly for all of eternity. But he paid it all for every single one who would, who would repent of their sins and put their faith in that sacrifice, Jesus paid it all. And because He was fully man, He's able to act as the substitute for man. And because He is infinite as God, He's able to pay an infinite penalty for many. This is, this is what's happening here. The anger of God that we deserve, turning, it's turning from us, on to another target. And since there is no suitable target that could be provided anywhere else on the earth, 
God himself provides that target for us in our Savior. This is why we must be absolutely overjoyed when we think about propitiation. The just wrath of God satisfied in Christ and not on us. But that's not all. That's not all we're to be overjoyed about when it comes to our salvation. That's what we want to look at here in our second sub-point. The joy of reconciliation. The joy of reconciliation. We begin to see that at the end of verse 1 and on into verse 2 when he says, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. God does not simply cleanse us of our sin and then, and then leave us in some neutral state like, like when a person leaves a courtroom cleared of all charges and then goes to find their own way. That is not what God does for us. At the end of verse 1, we see that this same God who we were once enemies with now brings us in to comfort us. He, he didn't just love His people by paying their penalty and then, and then being done with them. No, He has now a settled disposition of love towards us. Indeed, we have been adopted as His children been reconciled to Him. We now have a relationship with God through Christ. And it's even, even greater than what, we could, than what we would have experienced had the fall never taken place. Because not only has Christ taken all of our sins upon Himself in the death of Christ, but also, also we also find the imputation of Christ's righteousness upon ourselves. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God doesn't merely treat us as those who are innocent, though that would be much better. He treats us as His children. Because we have been given the righteousness of Christ, God now takes pleasure in us. Even though it would be wonderful enough for God to, to just look upon us and not have wrath anymore. We've been given so much more in that now He looks upon us in, with delight and love because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. We see that fleshed out further in verse 2 when it's talking about, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. God is not merely the one who saves us. He is also the salvation that we receive. God doesn't merely do this amazing work of redemption so that we can one day get heaven out of it. He does it so that we can get God. He doesn't just save. He is salvation. He is not just the source of our salvation, but He is the end of our salvation. He's the means and the end. That's why he can say, I will trust and not be afraid. Why is that? Why is that the case now that we can trust and not be afraid? Because our relationship has changed. God still hates sin. He still hates sin. His anger burns against it. So it would make sense, you would think, for, for me to be terrified again every time I sin. 
And it would be if it weren't for the fact that all of my sin, past, present, and future, has been paid fully in Christ, and God no longer sees it in me in the same way. He will no longer punish you in wrath for your sin, but he will, he will discipline and love to correct the sin of a child that is precious to him, like we read earlier in Hebrews 12. We can trust and not be afraid because we know that our relationship with him has changed in such a way that he will treat us as a father who loves his child. When a child disobeys a father that they know loves them, they don't fear that their father is going to destroy them for it. They know in their hearts that he will lovingly correct in order to do what is best for them and help them grow and mature. Because of the relationship that each one who has been saved by God now has with him, they, they know that they never have anything to be ultimately afraid of again. That's what we know. But instead, we can trust in a loving God who will now and for all of eternity only ever act in a way that is best for us. For him to do otherwise would make no sense. Right? When you think of, that's the, that's the truth in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is there anything that God could do for us that would be more difficult or, or more loving than for him to give us his own son? Of course not. And if not, then how could we ever be afraid or fail to trust that he is not going to do that which is best for us? We understand that God is our salvation. So much greater a truth than merely not going to hell. Because of this, we should easily be able to say he is our strength. We have nothing to fear. He is our song. We have nothing better to sing about. This is why we sing songs that talk about how great God is, not just how great heaven will be, or in, and surely not about our own merits or our own loveliness or worthiness. The song that we see here, it comes from the Spirit who has been set free, who sees that there is no work left to be done. It's all been done on our behalf. All we can do is sing. So in these first two points, we see some of the more personal aspects of our salvation, represented in the fact that Isaiah has been using singular nouns and pronouns. Even though that is true, we, we do need to recognize that it was always God's intention to save a people, a people, a group unto himself. But what we see here in these first two verses is the intricate work of salvation that takes place in each of our lives as we individually repent of our sins and believe in the gospel. In this third point, though, we see an aspect of our salvation that's intended to be seen. Third subpoint, we see an aspect of our salvation that's intended to be seen in a more corporate way. In verse 3, Isaiah switches from first-person singular, and he moves to more of an address style in second-person plural. That's entirely appropriate as we examine this third subpoint, which is the joy of sanctification. 
the joy of sanctification. We see this displayed here in verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Again, the first two verses seem to be directed more towards inner contemplation, but now starting here, the verses become more directed on on an outward expression. Here we come to see and understand that salvation is not merely an event that happened to you. Do not think of your salvation that way, Christian. It is now a reality that you live in. This is how you need to see and understand salvation. We see in many places in Scripture the, the metaphor about, about water being given to quench thirst and to give life to a dry and dead land, representing the way that God comes and gives life to the spiritually dry and weary. We saw last week, uh, we saw Jesus use this metaphor in John 4 with the woman at the well. And hopefully that narrative is still fresh in your mind because remember how Jesus contrasts the water that he offers with water from a jar that's just going to go empty. He calls it a spring of water, a source that cannot run empty. And the word translated here in the ESV as well can also be translated as spring. Some of you see that reflected in your translations. The idea is the same. It's that you are getting water from a source that does not run empty. You have access to the source of all water and therefore cannot run dry. Sanctification is the process by which God has promised to make us grow continually into the image of Christ. And not only is Jesus Christ the means of and the goal of our salvation, but he is also the source of our day-to-day growth and salvation. In him we have access to the limitless springs of water that will allow us to grow in him. It is this message of the gospel that will continue to satisfy. This message of the gospel that we've just been talking about that will continue to satisfy and refresh you again and again. It is a reality that you now live in. Not an event that has happened. And I love that it is at this point where Isaiah has begun proclaiming to all the people of God, because it is our sanctification, our daily moment-by-moment growth, that we need each other. It is for that aspect. That, that, that's why God has given us one another. One of the reasons God has given us one another, given us a church. God uses His people, His church, to help each other to continue to draw from the wells of salvation. This is what happens whenever we gather together. Whenever we gather together, we remind each other as we navigate through this spiritual desert that is 2019 American culture, reminding each other where we need to go to be nourished, where we need to go to grow, to be quenched with that which is truly refreshing. As we go through life, through trials, we're faced with sinful patterns that, that we need, to, need help to overcome. The world offers us salt water which looks like it could be helpful, but just distracts us for a second and leaves us with a greater need for that which is truly satisfying. We need God's gift of the church, each member of the body operating as it is supposed to, to keep reminding us of where we need to be going, reminding us of what is truly important, what's truly satisfying. To keep going back to the gospel, rehearsing the gospel, 
drinking in the gospel and all of its beauty so that we can continue to grow and thrive and flourish. So that we will not only be able to do what we see in these last three verses, but so that these truths and the implications of these truths will be what naturally and constantly springs up out from us, which brings us to the next main point in your outline, point number two, the voice of salvation. The voice of salvation. If, if you truly understand the depths of that which we have been discussing so far, if your heart is, is inflamed with the joys of the truths of what God has done for you in Christ, if verses 1 through 3 truly are an accurate representation of your heart, then verses 4 through, sh- 4 through 6 should be the natural response. I remember when I was a kid, when I saw the movie Jurassic Park for the first time, I remember being absolutely blown away by it, by how realistic the dinosaurs looked. I liked dinosaurs a lot. I watched specials on TV on how they were able to do it. There's a good amount of time when I was so excited about the movie, I was just looking for ways to bring it up in a conversation. I'd look for other kids talking about it, and so I could join in. I saw the movie, I think, several times in the theater. I read the book. I bought the VHS tape right when it came out with my own money. Maybe you've had similar experiences in your life with entertainment or sports, or you discovered maybe a new hobby. That's the kind of expression, kind of way we live when we're excited about something. You want to talk about it. You look, look for an opportunity to bring it up, like thinking about it. You want to draw the experience out. If that's the case with mere temporal things, how much more should Christians be longing to do what we see here in verses 4 through 6? Verses 4 through 6, and I have two quick sub-points that I'd like us to focus on in this section when it comes to the voice of salvation. Or, or what we should hear, what we should hear coming out of those who know and are experiencing the joys of salvation. The first subpoint, subpoint A, is praise. Praise. We see both actually of the subpoints in verses four through six. Look at that with me. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. We see that those of whom this salvation is true of will say, they will say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name. Again, this doesn't that just seem obvious when we think about salvation? In light of what we've just looked like, of course that is going to be our response. How could it not be? When it says calling upon the name of the Lord, that doesn't just mean using His name properly. When we see that the name of the Lord What's meant by name, what they understood has to do with rightly acknowledging, having a right understanding of his character and his reputation. So this makes so much sense for us then as we worship God and sing of his faithfulness, how he is truly righteous and good, how God has made a way in Christ to uphold his standard of perfect 
holiness and still save a people unto himself. How he can display his perfect justice and merciful kindness at the same time. Calling upon his name then means that when we worship him, we will do it with a right understanding of who he truly is. It will be important for us to speak and sing accurately of him. His character is reflected in all of his attributes. That's the name of the Lord that we exalt and sing praise to. His wrath as well as his mercy, his holiness, his love, justice, grace, sovereignty, immutability, omniscience. Calling upon his name means that we will not hide from or exclusively focus on one particular thing about him all of the time. It means we will strive to worship him in his fullness, knowing that anything else is to worship and sing to a God of our own making. It is to not rightly understand and call on the name of the Lord when we do that. We are so thankful, we are so thankful that we have Ren Mary here working with Travis, picking out music and lyrics that truly glorify the name of the Lord. Ren, as our music leader, really understands this. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to him about whether or not he would like the church to maybe look into sending him to some kind of church music conference. You know, if we could find a good doctrinally sound one. He told me very graciously, no thanks, I would much rather go to something like the Shepherd's Conference. Some of those conferences are pretty good, but I want deep, rich theology. That's what he said. Now, how grateful we should be for him. He understands this truth so well. Learning more about music and seeing what's going on in the world of church worship music, even if it's really good stuff, will not have as great effect on true worship as having an increasingly accurate understanding and greater appreciation for who God is and what he has done. Truly calling upon his name. Though we should strive for excellence in all we do, catchy music and big-time production does not lead to true worship of God. Even if it makes you feel good, true worship comes from the ability to rightly call upon His name. And we are right as we move on to, to, to be talking about singing here. Notice in verses 5 and 6, it specifically said that those who live in the joy of their salvation will sing. They will sing. In verse 5, we, still in the plural, this, we get this imperative. So, so the imperative should read something like, All of you sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. It's the idea of commanding corporate worship. Commanding corporate worship is the logical response to the joy of our salvation. It is the command, in the words once again of Ren Mary, to participate in vibrant congregational singing. That's the command here. Verse 6 is then a command to each individual within the congregation of Zion to shout and sing for joy. Notice the expectation. The expectation is that if you have joy behind your singing, that's, that's expected. You should have joy behind your singing. It's not singing about joy. It's not singing about truth. Or, or even the command isn't even necessary to sing about God. 
The understanding is that the magnificence of everything that is true about who God is and what he has done, that true understanding about every facet of who God is in all of his glory, in his awesome holiness, and then to think that that God would condescend to save a people who were his enemies, who he had no obligation to save, that this God would choose to glorify himself even further by magnifying his holiness and his grace in saving a sinner like me. That truth will manifest itself in me through a heart that is overflowing with unspeakable joy. It must. And bursting to use the voice that is also his gift to me to sing of these truths. How could these truths, rightly understood, not do this in our lives? We will long, long to add our voices to a congregation joyously responding to the truth of the gospel, knowing that this is all a work of God that I had nothing to do with. All I can do is use my voice and sing of my wonder and thankfulness. You should not be outsung by unregenerate children in here. I've heard it. The ones who simply know the words and the tune and like to sing, but have no idea what it truly means to be a sinner, to be a worm, saved by the amazing, propitiating work of that same God who they have made themselves enemies against? Ah, if these truths don't draw singing from your heart through your mouth, then you had better never sing. Because whatever, whoever you're singing about can only be an idol. According to this passage, the other thing that should naturally spring from the mouths of those who have true joy in their salvation, second subpoint under the voice of salvation, subpoint B is proclamation. Proclamation. And that makes sense, right? In light of all that we've talked about, how is it possible that we can truly understand these things and keep it to ourselves? Again, this passage just presents this command like it's something that just should naturally come to the one who is overjoyed with their salvation. We see in verse 4 and 5 that we should be letting everyone know, everyone know about the deeds of the Lord, that which He has done, the ways in which He has acted gloriously among the peoples in all the earth. The idea is that we are telling this news to everyone, everyone we can. Of course we should. It's the greatest news that we could ever tell. It's the greatest news we could ever imagine. God, through Jesus Christ, has saved a justly condemned people to himself. If you repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ, you will be saved. And not from something as comparatively insignificant as physical death, but from eternal punishment. Not only will you be saved from something, but you are saved to something. From a life lived for selfish, fleeting treasures to a life that now has true purpose. A life lived through Him and for Him. A life of true and lasting joy. We are to tell everyone of his glorious deeds with the ultimate hope that they will be able to share in that joy and become another voice joyfully singing in here with us every Sunday morning. 
So we are to proclaim His deeds, what He has done, but that's not all. Remember what we said about the name of God, what the name entails. Not only are we to praise Him for the fullness of who He is and in His character, but we are also supposed to exalt that name. Exalt the name of God. That's what we see in verse 4. We are to proclaim the true God. And it is only His gospel that is good news. This means that we don't shy away from God as He has revealed Himself in the Bible and then joyfully proclaim that God to people. We don't approach people with uncertainty about what God has called sin and how He has created the world and people in His own image and then offer them a God that can help them with whatever it is that they perceive their own problem is. We don't tell them that that God loves them and will be there for them and then call it evangelism. God is who He has revealed Himself to be and man's problem is what God has told us that it is. To fear man to the point where we are afraid to declare God to be exactly who He has revealed Himself to be in the pages of Scripture is to fail, to fail to proclaim His name as exalted. Instead, you exalt a God that appeals to the person. The person you claim to be proclaiming God to. You exalt a God who does not exist. This is what we see today. That's what passes for evangelism. People will expertly maneuver a spiritual conversation so as not to present an uncomfortable aspect of God's character. And then they'll congratulate themselves afterwards thinking evangelism has been done for them for that day or week. Such a far cry from what we see here. It just shows how inoculated we've become to the truths of the gospel and the wonder of who God is that evangelism has become such a begrudging work that so many people try to find shortcuts that will allow them to prioritize, or you might say exalt, the feelings and false self-evaluation of the people we talk to. Those who understand who God is and therefore overjoyed in their salvation should be constantly looking for ways and people to share the gospel with. Not out of some begrudging legalistic sense of this is what I ought to be doing, but as those who can't help but be filled with joy because of the reality of what God has done for them in Christ. Do you think, as we read Acts 1 today, do you think that, that the disciples, as they were watching Jesus ascending into heaven, contemplating His command to go to all the nations, you think that as they were watching Him go up, they're like, sure, hope I can find a way to work this into a conversation. We've been saved from eternal punishment. Eternal punishment to eternal joy and bliss. Do we really believe that? From living a life only able to store up wrath to living a life pleasing to God, doing works that are a pleasing aroma, storing up treasures in heaven. Do we really believe that? From enemies of God to co-heirs with Christ? Do we really believe that? This is the greatest thing that has ever happened has ever happened to you or could ever happen to you. Nothing else is even close to waste our time being primarily excited about anything else 
or to be excited about telling anyone anything, and not be excited by this borders on insanity. Imagine if someone were about to die while inadvertently walking in front of a semi, only to have the president or some other super important person dive in the way and push them out of the way at the last second, giving their life for his, only to have that guy emerge from the ditch he was pushed into, excited to tell everyone about the penny he found while he was there. If that scenario were true, that man's actions would make more sense than those of us who claim to understand and believe the gospel and fail to joyfully exalt God by praising and proclaiming his glorious name and his amazing deeds whenever we can, wherever we can. So Grace Church, let's be faithful to constantly remind ourselves and each other of the glorious truths that we see in the gospel. The reality that we live in. Let's pray that we will never feel so familiar with them that they become just just a set of facts. Let's draw deeply and often from the wells of salvation. Let's ask God to keep us from ever growing callous to these truths. To keep our hearts always soft towards them. That each day we would be faithful to think through them. To have our hearts overflow with the joy and gratefulness that these truths demand. There would be a far cry. Far cry for us to ever consider it work to come before him with praise and thanksgiving and to excitedly share this wonderful news with anyone we get the chance to. Father, we thank you so much for the truths of your word that we see here. We cannot even express the gratefulness in our hearts for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we leave from here to to remember these things, that they would be always on our mind, always in our heart. I pray that we would review these things every day, that we would draw from the wells of salvation every day. As we read today about Esau and his ridiculous decision to trade his inheritance for a bowl of soup. May we not make the even greater mistake, even more foolish, by neglecting to speak of the great inheritance that we have received in Jesus Christ and reconciliation to a God who we were enemies of. Now sons and daughters of the Most High God through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray.